be like John the Baptist. I want to preach the truth regardless of the cost. And not just on Sunday morning when somebody gives me a mic and y'all sit there nicely. But I want to be bold enough to speak the truth to people who I come across in my life without worrying about the way that it makes me look. But doing it because I'm so in love with Christ. Doing it because I know, like John, that it's not my role to be baptizing him. I would rather have Jesus baptize me. It's not my place to be telling Jesus what to do. But I want to live with this tenderness that says, I'll do whatever you do. Matthew 3 this morning, Matthew 3, 1 to 12, and it's John the Baptist, so you might want to turn me down, otherwise <laughs> he gets hot. In those days... John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able. For I tell you, I had to change from my mocking tone back. Okay. Um, <laughs> for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children. Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with, this, with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, for the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let's pray. Lord God, would you allow us to hear and to respond this morning, Lord, to these words of your servant John. Most of all, Lord, to the person of your son Jesus. Amen. Well, this is always one of the most difficult, but also the most engaging weeks of the year for me when we get into Advent um, some of these texts are really just remarkable. Um, Isaiah 11 is like top tier for me in terms of Old Testament texts, right? All will stream to the mountain of the Lord and the lion and the, let's see, it's the wolf and the lamb shall lay together and the cow and the bear and the lion. And what does the lion lay with? The deer or something like that? Food. It lays with food. Um, and then you got Romans 15, which is just kind of this passage that never leaves me alone, um, my whole life, I feel like I'm thinking about Romans 15, 4 to 13. It just is unending. 
And then, of course, John the Baptist, <laughs> um, who I always think should be played in the movie by Andre the Giant. Um, you know, he's just this, like, huge, towering, massive figure um, who speaks in this booming sort of voice and yet honestly acts pretty gently when it comes down to it. But he's out in the wilderness. He's this burly fellow. We know that he's dressed in camel hair, that he eats locusts and honey, which if you remember from when we talked about Deuteronomy are kind of like travel food, right? It's granola bars that are still kosher. That's what a, gra that's what a locust is. It's a kosher granola bar. Um, but the problem with John the Baptist <laughs> and the reason that he kind of is what he is, the reason that he's so tough uh, for us to deal with, because no matter how many times I hear what he has to say, I'm still convicted when I read his words. John the Baptist is a prophet. And we're not used to prophets. We don't have very many prophets anymore. We have a lot of politicians. Um, we have a lot of people who will gauge what they say based on the polls. And I mean that both kind of literally, but then also just in our lives. We have people who will change their words based on how they think you're receiving it. But to the powerful and the respectable people, John comes in and says, you brood of vipers, right? You snake babies. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? What comes out of your mouth is poison. And you shouldn't be running away from God's judgment that you know is coming. You should actually be turning toward God's judgment. And you should welcome God's judgment. You should welcome the burning that you know is about to come your way. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Right? Don't think that because of your family, that because you're somebody who is somebody in your part of the world, that you're going to escape judgment. Don't think that because you're the child of a priest, that you're going to escape judgment. You know what I realized? Just this week, it hit me for the first time. John the Baptist is the child of a priest. <laughs> he should have been a Sadducee. He should have been one of those people who was milling around the temple, playing the politic and the power games of Jerusalem. But instead, he's out in the desert, dressed in camel's hair and eating locusts and honey, just scraping by this like subsistence sort of existence so that he can speak the truth so that he could speak what God calls him to speak. He says to them, you should not go and be VIPs, right? I, I, why are you continuing to try to seek this kind of life? You ought to instead be trying to become very repentant people. Seek the Lord and believe what God says about you. That's basically John's message. His message is that it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter whether you've been in this church since 1963, whether you were baptized as an infant and sanctified in the, as a preschooler. That's a joke. Okay. Your life, <laughs> right? Thanks, Rosalie. Yeah, Rosalie's, I, I can trust in her. Okay. 
Your life is in God, regardless of how much you've been around this Christian thing, regardless of how much you've been around church, regardless of how much you think you're okay, your life is in God. And so it doesn't matter whether you're kind of an everyday Israelite who's coming down hoping to hear some good news from John the Baptist. He's still going to baptize you. It doesn't matter if you're a Pharisee who holds authority over people in your little town. He's still going to baptize you. It doesn't matter if you're a Sadducee who puts themselves up at the top of the the social hierarchy. He's still going to baptize you. It's going to be the same baptism. It's going to be a baptism, he says, that is with water so that you might be cleansed, but ultimately it's pointing forward to the baptism that comes with the Spirit and with fire, the baptism that Jesus is bringing. He says, do not presume, do not make yourself out to be higher or holier than someone else who God has called, but instead come to the altar honestly appraising yourself Throw yourself on God's mercy. Did you hear what Paul said in Romans 15? May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. I'll move this down a little bit. To live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. See, Paul is talking to one church in Rome. He's writing to this Roman church. And he's hoping, praying, that they will find themselves living in harmony with one another rather than fighting and bickering behind each other's back. Now, here's the interesting thing. Paul had never met the church in Rome, right? He's writing to a church he did not plant. He was not their pastor. But he knew churches well enough to know that if you get people together for long enough, pretty soon they're fighting and bickering behind each other's back and finding excuses and reasons not to welcome one another. Pretty soon we come into the faith open and excited and ready to do all of the things that Christ has done in us for other people but pretty soon we begin to find excuses for why that's not true. Why we're, that's not really our job right now. Right? Where we put it off on someone else to another time. And so Paul wants to see harmony. He wants to see accord. He wants to see this church glorifying God with one voice. And that's a funny thing. Because harmony is hard. I don't know if you've tried singing. <laughs> Harmony's tough. Because harmony requires you to do something. I'm not good at singing harmony. That's why I insist on singing <laughs> the main one and making everybody follow me because it's a lot easier to do that. <laughs> harmony is tough because you have to sing something different than you actually want to sing. right? You have to sing something that's off of like the main melodic line, the main sort of flow of the music. You have to embrace the difference. You can sing, there's harmony and then there's unison. In unison, we all sort of sing the same thing. and It's the easiest thing to do, but it, it also is not quite as beautiful as it could be. And so the thing is, is that if we're going to have multiple singers, we often want to try to learn to harmonize. But 
But in order to do that, we have to embrace the fact that there are different voices. We have to look across the aisle and see somebody who's not like us. And rather than saying, man, I really wish they were like us. <laughs> I really wish they would just do what I wanted them to do when I want them to do it. I used to think as like a soccer player in like fourth grade. Like I wasn't the best soccer player, you know. But I thought if everybody on this team would just do what I wanted them to do, if I could just play with like nine other Jeffs, I think we would be great. I think we'd be really awesome. <laughs> and is that true? Of course that's not true. Because all of my weaknesses would have been multiplied nine times. So that it would have been so easy to defeat us as a team because we had no harmony. Right? We just kind of had unison. And oftentimes what we look for is unison. What we look for is people who are just like us in age, in our sort of social position, in our experience, in our education, in the jokes that we like. We want people who are like us. Amen. And that's a really bad idea. It's a really bad idea to have people who are just like us around us all the time. You know, Indra and I, we're different people. <laughs> Believe it or not, we are different people. Um, we are both, <laughs> we're both children of pastors. We're both children of Nazarene pastors. Um, we're both, what else? We both went to Point Loma, right? We had the same education. She's a little older, but yeah, I didn't tell you that. Uh, so she was like a couple years ahead. Yeah, <laughs> right? We, we both are the child. We're one of four children, right? Um, we both went to Point Loma. We both went to the same seminary. We both grew up more or less in Southern California, largely pretty middle-class upbringings. And yet over and over and over, even though all of those things are like, I want to say similar, and our life experiences kind of track. I still, it's like every time we come to a new stage in life, I'm like, oh, wow, we have very different expectations about what this is going to mean for us, don't we? <laughs> and we got to go through that, and we have to process it. And our life becomes different than I expected it to be based on my experience. And that's a good thing, actually. It might seem like that would cause conflict. It might seem like that would cause problems. But when we do that well, we, we don't do that. Um, we're not just different for the sake of being different. Right? And sometimes we can come into a community and we kind of say, this is the thing that I like to do and I'm going to do that thing. And we just go ahead and we plow forward with the thing that we love because we love it and we're good at it. And we know that we're good at it. But if we, if we take that thing, maybe it's music, maybe it's organizing some kind of group, maybe it's, I don't know, some sort of artistic endeavor or something like that. And if we don't allow that, if we don't actually submit that to other people, then all it is is just, that's what we call in music, cacophony. <laughs> It's different notes, but they don't match. So see, that's the other thing about harmony, is that you can have, you can have different notes, 
that are played, and we all know, we've all heard, you've probably heard me play them, where they're not, they don't actually match up all that well. They're dissonance, right? So if I'm playing a chord, real quick music theory, I won't get too deep down this, okay? If I'm playing a C, I've got three notes in particular, two notes in particular that can go with that, a C, an E, and a G, and that's gonna make a nice C chord, uh, right? Now I can play an F sharp with that C and it's gonna sound pretty bad. You're all gonna go, oh, like that's what we call a sour note <laughs> because your faces like collectively go like this. It doesn't sound good. So why don't they take D sharp, why don't they take F sharps off of the keyboard? Why don't they just take them away? We don't need F sharps. Every time I'm playing a C, E, and G, I don't want that F sharp. Well, they don't take them away because if I'm playing a D, I need that F sharp, right? So here's what I'm saying is all of those things will fit at the right time in the right place. But we have to be able to take our note that we want to play, pay attention to the people who are around us, and submit it to them and say, maybe now is not the right time. Maybe now is not the right time. Or maybe I'm going to ask somebody else to play a slightly different note. And the purpose of that is bringing the whole church into harmony so that, what does Paul say? So that God will be glorified. So that God will be glorified. So in order for us to be a harmonious people, in order for God's people to be harmonious, we actually have to do two things. We have to pay attention and we have to submit. We have to pay attention to the people who are around us and actually hear the notes they're playing, but then we have to submit what we want to what they're doing. And those are two very difficult things to learn to do well. It's simple, but it's hard. Right? It's simple, but it's hard. Now, I'm not just randomly reflecting on music. And I'm actually not even really talking about the harmony that happens among us as church members. What I'm really interested in here is in what John the Baptist is saying. He calls the Pharisees, he calls the Sadducees, and if you were there, he would call you too. In fact, he does call you too today to pay attention to what God is saying and to submit yourself to that word so that your life can begin to be in harmony with what God is saying about you what God is saying about this world. We submit ourselves to God. We submit ourselves to each other. If you pay attention and then submit to what God says about you, it not only frees you from the results of your sin, right? It not only frees you from that condemnation, we call that forgiveness, but it also frees you from the power of sin and death in the future where you are no longer, believe it or not, hear this word, you are no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer under the inevitable impacts of sin that came through the fall. Because of what Jesus has done in and for you, you have been justified. You have been made right. Okay? And so we submit ourselves to God in those ways. We're forgiven. We are justified. We also submit ourselves to each other. I submit myself 
he wanted to call me and tell me to do something, I submit myself to our district superintendent, right? Steve Scott. <laughs> because he's above me. But I also submit myself to my family and to their needs and desires. It's not always what I want to do. Very often, not what I want to do. <laughs> but it's good for me to submit myself to them for their good. I also submit myself to those who are, if we're talking about kind of a ladder here, I submit myself to those who are under me. When Pastor Cody comes and tells me something and says, look, Jeff, <laughs> I got something to say. <laughs> and he never comes, you know, with like a look in his eye. <laughs> he doesn't. But it's wise for me to submit myself to him. It's wise for me to say, you know what, I'm going to take your word for this because you have experience, you have knowledge, you have wisdom, you have gifts and graces that I don't have. Also, you were just somewhere else talking to the person who I should have been talking to. <laughs> I submit myself to you and to the board as a congregation because this isn't my church, right? This is God's church and I'm here to serve God's church. And so by submitting myself to you, I'm ultimately submitting myself to God. And we're all in that place. We find ways to say, who is this person that I could submit myself to? Because as we do that, we are practicing submitting ourselves to the Lord. We are practicing submitting ourselves to Christ so that we can come to know what it is to be forgiven, what it is to be justified. We can come to admit our ignorance and our weakness and submit ourselves to his process of salvation. John comes and he's different from the people around him. He's wearing different clothes. He's eating different food. He lives in a different place, but he calls all the everyday people of Israel in their jeans and their t-shirts and their suits and ties and their business casual tunics, whatever it was that people were wearing that wasn't camel hair, he calls them into repentance in the way that they knew how to repent. And so we come to this text today and we're humble enough to admit as we read John's sermon that we cannot save ourselves, but that we need Jesus to save us. But at the same time, we're also bold enough to believe that Jesus has saved us. We're not arrogant in that fact, but like, they say, like it says in Hebrews 4, we are bold to approach the throne of grace. Contrary to the hope of Christ, the world often has an attitude that puts a shield around his heart. Um, it puts a shield around the good life that we have in Christ. It's the attitude called cynicism. Cynicism is armor. It's armor that we put on our spirits. It's armor that we put on our hearts and our personalities sometimes where our first response to something new is to say, no, that's wrong. And not only is it wrong, it's dumb. And we start to have this cynical approach to everything that nothing can actually be good. There must be something wrong with that. I know, I just, I just haven't been around long enough to see it yet. We hear two, the good news of two people getting married. And we think, yeah, okay, 
but the chances are pretty good they're going to break up. That's not going to last, especially those two, right? We have this like cynicism, or somebody has a baby and it's like, okay, good, congratulations. Call me in three months and tell me how you're sleeping, right? We do this all the time. Somebody new comes into our life and it's like, okay, they're, they seem nice, but are, are they really nice? I don't know if they're really nice. They just seem nice. We hear news and we think, yeah, but we know it's really a lie. <laughs> or we know it's really fake news. It's cynicism. And I got to tell you, I'm cynical. This is like my, de- Tom, you know, <laughs> this is my demon. This is the thing that sits on my shoulder. I have a tendency to go like, but what good is that really going to do? I know it sounds good, but what good is that really going to do in the long run? I know that there's going to be a problem with that later. And so the voice in my head says, don't put yourself out there. Everyone will think you're dumb. Everyone will think you're weird. And then because they think you're weird, they're going to think Jesus is weird and every other Christian is weird. But I want to be like John the Baptist. I want to preach the truth regardless of the cost. And not just on Sunday morning when somebody gives me a mic and you all sit there nicely. But I want to be bold enough to speak the truth to people who I come across in my life without worrying about the way that it makes me look. But doing it because I'm so in love with Christ. Doing it because I know, like John, that it's not my role to be baptizing him. I would rather have Jesus baptize me. It's not my place to be telling Jesus what to do. But I want to live with this tenderness that says, I'll do whatever you say. What I'm saying and what I hope for us as a church and what I hope for you individually is that you would dare to hope in Christ. That you would be so bold that hope would be the thing that overflows in your life. To be able to say that we really and truly believe in Isaiah 11, that one day the mountain of the Lord will be lifted up and it will be over all mountains and, and on that mountain that every nation will stream to that place to learn the way of Christ to learn the way of God. And that there the cow and the bear and the the wolf and the lamb and the predators and the prey will all lay down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. And the babies and the infants will play with the nests of snakes. That we would dare to hope for that world. And and what what does that mean? I think sometimes I hear our, our prayers for healing. And I know people in my life who are not healed. And I give up praying for them sometimes because I don't dare to hope for their healing anymore. Because I get tired of praying and having that not answered. And it's like, okay, fine, then maybe maybe God just wants them to suffer. And and I think sometimes the reason folks are not healed... Okay, I'm not trying to talk about anybody's personal situation. But let me just say, I think sometimes the reason healing does not happen in the world 
is because God is actually calling us to a greater hope on the other side of that. Yes, it would be wonderful for cancer to be healed. Yes, it would be wonderful for my brother-in-law to get out of bed. Yes, it would be wonderful to see addictions dealt with. And I do pray for those things, and I know that one day they'll come to an end. But God is also calling us to a greater hope beyond that. And the tendency for us sometimes is to try to say, like, if it doesn't happen here now the way I want it, then the healing wasn't really real. And the truth is, Isaiah 11 shows us God is actually calling us to a bigger healing even beyond those things, where we will look back at things like cancer and ALS and autoimmune diseases and addiction and divorce. We'll look back at those, on those as mere bumps in the road, even though they're mountains right now. Even though they're mountains right now. But we dare to hope in the midst of our cynicism and despair. We dare to hope that something like repentance will really and truly change us. That something as simply praying, Lord God, I am wrong, change me, will make a difference. We dare to hope that God would use even us to accomplish his purposes in this world. Because as small as you may think you are, God wants to use you. And we dare to hope that God is not done with anyone that we encounter. That there's no one at the checkout stand. There's no one you yell at in their car on the freeway. There's no one you pass by sleeping on the side of the street that God is done with. And God's not done with you. The image in 11, Isaiah 11, 1, is a shoot from the stump of Jesse. All earthly analysis would have told us that God was done with Israel. That it was a tree that had been chopped down. Jesse, we remember, is David's dad, right? And there's all these promises to David and to his family that they will forever and ever and ever and ever be on the throne. And yet when we get to this part of the story, it's like, Who's left? <laughs> that tree that God put all of his promises into is just a stump. It's been chopped down not just to David, but one notch below David, to Jesse. <laughs> and yet, there is a shoot from the stump. And yet, we dare to hope that even out of a stump, God is bringing life. We dare to hope that God's word has not failed but that despite the stumpy appearance of our world, that God is still bringing life, God is still bringing salvation. And so where are you despairing in your faith? Where are you despairing in your life? Where do you need that hope? Where do you need to dare again? To be reminded that Jesus is in fact good news and that the world that he's bringing is better than any other. One last comment. In Isaiah 11.1, 1, he talks about the shoot from the stump of Jesse. 
But in Isaiah 11.10, he says, Jesus is, hold on, let me get back to it. (laughs) At the end of that passage, he says, in that day, not the shoot, but the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Isaiah knew that the shoot that comes off the top and the root that starts the tree in the first place were the same thing. He knew that the branch that was going to finish David's line and the very root that began David's line were the same person. And so I think sometimes we need to be reminded (laughs) That yes, the branch that we're looking forward to is Christ. Yes, the world that we're looking forward to is in fact Jesus. It is Jesus' world that he's bringing. It is Jesus' mountain that he's making. He's the one who is worthy to open the scroll. He's the one who has the answers for this broken world. But at the same time, he's also the root. He's the creator. He's the one who has actually brought this life to this place which means that he's been here all along so that in the midst of Jesus being the future, Jesus is also our past. And if we will just open our eyes, we'll see that he is right here with us in this place. Jesus is where this thing is going, but he's also where it all started. And so reach out to him today. Receive him into your life yet again. And trust that in this humble maybe stumpy bread and cup. We can dare to hope in the one who makes and who saves all things. Lord God, we praise you and we thank you for your help. And we thank you for the hope that we have in you. And we pray, Lord God, for the ability to lean on you right now take the worry and the concern that we're not doing enough or praying enough or good enough or holy enough and to place that in your hands knowing that we only have salvation in you. Father, as we come to this table today, I pray that we would really and truly receive from your hands the grace that we need.